Michael Heyman and you're listening to Changemakers in association with the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers and campaigners, we will be reflecting on the past two years of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed us? I'm joined today by Cephas Williams, who describes himself on his website in just one word, human. But one word doesn't quite do justice to someone with a career as extensive as any campaigner in the UK today. As founder of the Black British Network, he aims to use the collective influence of business leaders across the UK to keep the conversation going around the challenges of systemic racism we see and hear around the world beyond just moments of trauma and public traction. And as well as convening and inspiring corporate leaders, Cephas has a track record of impact impacting the public consciousness with his photography campaigns, Portrait of Black Britain and 56 Black Men, and the open letter he penned to his newborn son in the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020, Letter to Zion. Seth, welcome to Changemakers. Blessings. Appreciate you having me. Oh, Oh, listen, not least because you're the first person that has ever appeared twice on this show. So welcome back. Oh, I appreciate appreciate you inviting me again. And I was going to say, that was a really, really interesting introduction. I get introduced by a lot of people, and that was actually quite com- comprehensive. So hats off. To you. <laughs> well, I'm glad we I'm glad we got we got the the gist of it. But you know, and, and not least because you and I go back, Safa. So we, we've known each other for for many years. And the one thing I would say in knowing you is that you're not a person that likes labels. So help us introduce you to a new audience. Introduce yourself for us in terms of. What it is you want people to know? I don't know. I, I struggle with this part. So that's where I just kind of, my default character is I'm human first. You know what I mean? As you all know from conversations that we've had in interval over the years, I'm very aware of my humanity through things I've been through on a personal level. And you can, you know, touch on those if, if they're relevant. But, you know, I'm very aware of my humanity and the, the fragility of humanity. And so, you know, you're, you're someone new every day, I think. You know what I mean? So I just kind of keep creating, keep pushing, keep moving in. You know, we, we often limit ourselves down to a career path or a job title, but we've got two arms, eyes, mouth. Everyone doesn't have the same thing. We have, we have more than just a career, do you know what I mean? And we often, as human beings, don't utilise all of our anatomy and all of our being, which, which is our mind, our physical being, you know what I mean? So hmm. uh, there's so much in me, and I've tapped into that from a young age, due to the things I've been through and how that gave birth to me being hyper aware of my humanity. Well, one thing I want to do in terms of expressing that humanity is probably touch on the fact that that I think language is important to your story, not least because you spend a good amount of time actually not speaking. And so actually finding a voice, how you communicate. Pick up the story for us on on that front in terms of the gift of expression. I think it's really powerful that you express it as the gift of expression as well, or very interesting that you do that. And obviously stemming from a conversation we've had and very quickly, obviously I went through depression when I was young and I didn't want to be alive anymore, you know. And in that period of time where I was contemplating taking my life, I stopped speaking for a period of time and I went further within myself and I guess my ability to do that comes from came from my ability to be still and I feel like as human beings we're not actually able to be still enough and the power of stillness is also the power of reflection so I'm going to do something really different here. I'm going to link it to something we're going to speak about later but I'm going to bring it back so when you look at letter to Zion one of the things I say in letter to Zion is the closest thing to perfection is reflection this idea that we're often so busy trying to create this perfect idea of ourselves, this perfect idea of leadership or this perfect idea of the world that we forget that actually, what I feel like perfection is never achieved here. We achieve perfection through reflecting and saying, well, let's get on with it. Let's do it. 
right? And then when we've done it, let's reflect. Obviously, be considerate whilst you're, whilst you're creating. But beyond just being considerate, be still. Now, what, what allowed me to be still from a young age was that depression and was that ability to say, you know, I don't see the purpose in life anymore and I no longer want to be here. And so what I did instead of taking my life, and I say it like it was easy now, but actually it was a very difficult process, is I almost reversed suicide. So I took everybody else out of the world and imagined a world with nobody else in it. So I took away, you know, my immediate circle, my family, New Cross, London, UK and the globe and imagined a planet with just me in it. And at that point, I came to the realisation that without people, there would be no purpose. Mm. So I started to add everybody back in one by one and I come to the realisation that if there was no one else in this world, there'd be no reason for my existence. That level of stillness and that level of kind of reflective thinking and thought is what gives birth to my detachment almost from labels or my detachment almost from it has to be this one thing because actually beyond all of the manifestation of what we can become on earth we are just human beings and mm. i feel like we're inherently here for the next person as opposed to just well what i would say is there's no detachment from language and i think you know that's very much evidenced by i think a the extraordinary way that you managed to sort of like decompartmentalize your life and put it back together like that but also i think through letter to zion which you know is i think you can read that letter in, in many different ways you know one part message from a dad to his son one part warning about the racism that black people have always and continue to face but one part hopeful vision for a better future I mean I'd love to sort of talk a little bit about the letter because I also feel that we will put this that letter alongside this episode for people to read to to make their own minds up but it feels to me like a really important moment in your journey in terms of finding the language and finding the future vision and the message that you wanted to deliver Oh, 100%. And it's interesting. Again, like in hindsight, I was meant to write that letter. In front of the letter, I wasn't meant to write that letter because I was planning on taking that time off and just spending the time with my wife and my son. I didn't want to do anything. So everyone that knew me at that time, like was close to me at that time, knew that I was going to switch off. And in fact, the day before I switched off my phone, because I was going to physically switch off my phone, I sat down with my wife and her parents and her brother and, like, and such. And I said, nobody bring me any news that's literally one of the things I said. And I said, we sat down in the living room and said, no, I'm going to be any news. I'm off. I just want to be in a space to just welcome my son and focus because you will know I'm very busy, right? So I had to put all that to one side of focus. Now, the day before I switch off, literally the news of George Floyd is brought to me. Mm. The, the strange kind of coming together of those moments was my son's due date was the 26th of May. George Floyd's murder, I believe, was the 25th of May. So the day before I'm expecting my son to be born, George Floyd is murdered. So I wanted to switch off just before the due date. He ended up being born in June. And so I'm in this position where I don't actually want to do anything. The, but the public, this is this is the power, right? And this is the interesting part when we talk about language, like, you know, how do you want people to see you? Or, you know, who are you? Like, for two, I don't really care how people see me, family. Like, I have a, an element of caring, but if we get too consumed with how the world sees us, sometimes we lose track of who we actually are and what we're actually doing. So... Mm. Public perception for, from a lot of people and messages received is like, yo, Sif, that's what you're going to say about this. Like, George Floyd's been murdered. Like, it's a lot of people that are looking at me in a certain light as you are the guy that's driving this for them. Not everybody, but as a number of people. We had, like, thousands of messages and emails. What are we going to do now? And not just from Black people, from all over. 
And if I got too consumed with that public perception of the hats I wear for different people, then I'd end up being pulled left, right and centre to become this thing I wasn't actually feeling at the time. What made me write Letter to Zion was a coming together of two things. was an appreciation for who I was in the landscape and the messages I received. But beyond that, it was five white leaders that sent me a note, right? And it was really important, this particular point, because I didn't feel like, I thought there's a space for us coming together as black people and like saying, boom, boom, let's change, let's change, let's change. But unless those people that sit in positions of power hand over some of that power or use their power to really cascade change, change isn't going to happen. And if it does happen in isolation of that, then it's a coup. It's a, it's a, it's a different. So for me, it's like, you know, where do you draw the line between the change and the rebellion, right? Yeah. So my mind was speaking more towards that and coming coming full circle on that point. When I received that those phone calls from those white guys, and again, I say those white guys for context, but beyond that, they were friends of mine. So the reason why they were able to call me or message me and say, yo, Sifas, you see what's going on, boom, is because we'd already built up a relationship, right? Mm. So at that point, I saw myself as this conduit in many rooms between what I was describing as enlightened soft power and these white men very often that sit at the top of systems and to some degree black renaissance. But for me, it was it was personal. And so I embodied that into- And, and I think that it, it comes across as a very personal piece of prose when when you read it. And, you know, and I, and I think, you know, having known you for a number of years, I, I think it would have almost been impossible for you to have gone through something like the George Floyd murder experience and not have found comment because of the nature of, of who you are and the world that you want to create. And I just want to remind you of, of something that, that you wrote there, which you talked about sparking a movement that woke up the world however it's very important for us here and now not to go back to sleep now those were words from 2020 covid was just kicking off we were in a completely new situation and of course part of this interview is around the question how has covid changed us i suppose if i was looking at that letter as the starting point my question is are we awake or did the or did the world fall back to sleep well the direct answer is it fell back to sleep the the nature of how COVID coexisted with that piece is, is is also very powerful. Funny enough, it was the fact that the world poetically went to sleep that almost added the fuel to this particular engine that felt like some type of change. So the world switched off. No one was going out. So what I described closer to when I released Letter to Zion is, so black people are being murdered across the board. And I'm not going to be able to do this as much just as I want to because of the time. But black people have been murdered for years. This is not the first time a black person being murdered and in a very, you know, devastating and heinous way, right? But there was a few things in that time. One, we was on lockdown. So in that period, people couldn't escape the news of George Floyd. We couldn't just go into work, go to the pub after work. We couldn't just go shopping in Central after. We had to sit down. That was proper lockdown in our house. No escape. So again, a lot of the CEOs that I know that are white men, a lot of their kids would naturally be at private school, right? Their kids, their millennial kids, Gen Z kids, weren't at private school, weren't away from home. They were in their houses protesting as well, saying that they're going to go out to the march. And I know this firsthand from speaking to people. So some CEOs weren't even engaged until their millennial Gen Z kid was like, yo, like, what are you doing for George Floyd? Now, coincidentally, when you tie that back into the power of something like a letter to Zion, when, when people are able to see their humanity in a situation, that idea of empathy really pushes people to move. But what I preach is that we need to take it from empathy to empowerment, right? Because if, I, if it's always based on empathy, then I always need a really well-meaning white man in a position of power to change my situation. That doesn't change nothing. For me, 
The real change comes when we're empowered. And what lockdown and COVID almost provided within that dynamic was no escape, right? And so you were forced to be empathetic. You were forced to speak. And so loads of CEOs and the majority of them in the West are white men came out with statements, came out and spoke, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And what happened was a lot of people started to go back into empathy and what can we do or how can we show that as a company we're the best place to work for for black people you know this is why you know this company is the best it's like we don't care who like it's not about that it's about how black people are doing period it's about us moving a dial and so in closing what was born out of the renaissance the black renaissance that came off of the murder of george floyd plus a sequence of other events that led up to that what was born from there was a collective progressive thought process towards Mm. that shared humanity that companies then went away and made a business project and program about so we for the first time had ceos talking about a societal issue in a way that some to some degree felt human so they did town halls everybody got to come and speak and share their opinion and then they go back and they say well what's the business program for this challenge well, the change wasn't sparked by a business program. It's collective. It needs to, you need to come out of talking about why your company is doing the best and come into how we're doing as humanity and understanding closing your role as a leader to drive some of that change in humanity through your organization. Right. So, so the consciousness has definitely risen. The leadership, I suppose, is the question we're talking about. You know, you, you've you've been working with leaders through the Black British Network. You've advised everything from the board of Tesco's, but you know, you talked about white men in power. Let's let's talk about one of those in a very specific sense. Mark Allen, the, the chief executive of, of land securities, is somebody that you have forged the relationship through after you know, a pretty distressing experience uh, at the Blue Water Shopping Centre. Tell us a little bit about actually what happened, both in terms of before and what then happened next. Uh, Before I go into it, I guess just to, to say something about Mark. Mark has proven to me to be an extremely enlightened individual to date, right? And our conversations and his speed to action and us doing stuff, meaningful stuff and building relationship is testament to that. So that's the first thing I'll say. With regards to like what happened for context, people can go online and watch, but I went into Blue Water Shopping Centre ahead of me releasing Portrait of Black Britain at the Manchester International Festival. Me and my wife were just getting some some suitcases to take us off down. I was in House of Fraser. I left House of Fraser after purchasing my products. Security guards run up to me, grab me. This is the part that's not seen in the recording. They grab me and they say, did you pay for that? Now, I feel a bit irritated that I responded calm. Like at that time, I was like, yeah, I paid for it. And I just kept it moving. I wasn't even going to complain or do anything. So me as a black person, I almost felt like it's normal for that to happen. And that's irritating that I actually accepted that as normal. Then after I said, yeah, I paid for it. I kept it moving. He comes in front of me and he says, you're not going anywhere. Did you pay for that? And that's when I flipped my camera out. And there's the whole thing. I've said it to you like five times. Can I see your receipt? And the power of that moment is, and the shame of that moment is, at every point of my humanity where I asked for a normal process to be had, I was failed. So the first person asked to speak to was not Mark Allen, the CEO of Lancet. The first person asked to speak to was the head of security. If the head of security came out and was competent and dealt with me politely, I would have never spoken to Mark. The head of security was an Asian man for context. He came out, he squared up to me like he wanted to fight and slap my camera out my hand. He failed. So who's the next person? I need to speak to the general manager of Blue Water now. At the time, they said, I can't speak to the general manager of Blue Water, right? 
And so for me as a civilian, I've been failed on my like basic like fam. I'm, I'm asking you to speak because I've now been harassed at this point. But what's often the case of black men and black people across the board, but I can speak more so as a black man, is we are approached with a different level of aggression and mm. expect to almost be cool with it, right? So your assumptions about me, which I've been campaigning about since 56 and you know, beyond, you know, that's 56 black men for listeners so 56 yeah is, which is another one of your big campaigns 100 but means that you now approach me with this idea that i'm guilty until proven innocent whereas the normal thing to do if i stole that thing i'm now out of your jurisdiction you can't actually touch a, a, a thief outside of your store so you let that thief get along and you kind of you want to radio the mainstream blue water security that we think this person this perp just stole some stuff can we try and apprehend him somewhere and sort up but but let me just come in there for a minute because you know i suppose people are listening and thinking well i guess he felt rage and anger and that you know that led that led on but yeah. i know you as as a sensitive person as well and somebody that would have probably suffered great upset I'd great and, and, and great sadness over it. I mean, and so I wonder if, you know, in terms of trying to just sort of like to get a sense of the feeling, because, I mean, a lot of people will never have been stopped, you know, until show me your receipt. I want to know what it feels. I want people to understand the feeling that goes on when you've legitimately purchased something and then you're confronted like that. I want to come full circle to your actual point about Mark and such, but here's what's interesting. We'll get to Mark. Don't worry. Let's focus on you first. We'll get to him next. Yeah. This was interesting and you described me as a sensitive person now for me i take that and i take that and i, I wait on my chest at the time of my life where if you describe me as a sensitive person i'd have felt like family like give me my street cred bro. i mean like <laughs> as a sensitive like but at the same time like i've got to a point in my life where like i embrace all of my emotions you know what i mean as, as a man and i'm happy to like be emotional at the same time, I feel like I was forced to be sensitive. I don't think I was raised sensitive. I was definitely raised empathetic, but because of what I went through and my depression and all the rest, it made me a bit more like in touch with one of my emotions and the emotions of others. And, you know, the strength it took me to not like slap somebody that day. Like, because sensitivity aside, there's a point in anyone's like it's at that point it's like human reactions almost just to turn around and spark somebody. But I feel like looking back on a situation. When you asked me to go within myself, it's not just me as a black man that's getting stopped or whatever. It's me as Sifas Williams, considering everything I have been pushing for, mm. considering that I don't see myself as the voice of black people and I don't want to be seen as the voice of black people in the UK or anything like that. People have described me as such, but I'm me, right? But beyond that, I also embody the voices of so many people because, and we've just employed someone, uh, uh, you met her briefly for comms, and she's just been going through all the emails. One of the things she actually said this morning is on Friday, she was going through some of the emails that I get sent by people. So I get thousands and just going through some of the emails, she never appreciated like almost the gravity of my impact in that respect. Mm-hmm. And how many emails I get from families, from mothers, from different people. My son's just been this. This has happened to my daughter. This is what's going on in the workplace. And it actually can bring tears to someone's eyes to understand how much we're going through. Now, I have to deal with that wear that understand that and then in my plight to do stuff on a peaceful tip to create kind of parity within the black community in the uk and beyond that i am now as me now which is why when i think you know you you use the word as i said in the introduction to describe yourself as human right you know and actually i think your humanity you know comes across it it's such an important part of of who you are and what makes you so persuasive i think in terms of the the way the way you are a campaigner an advocate uh 
Yeah, I'm just thinking about words that don't give you the labels, but you know what I'm saying. Like, but but as a as a kind of somebody that sees better days ahead, let's put it that way. Tell us about then. So so you get to this extraordinary meeting where the chief executive of one of the biggest companies in the country and you meet. Let, let, let's talk about that in terms of a a meeting where. You know, as you said in, in your LinkedIn post, we're past apologies, well-meaning gestures and tokenism. What happens next? So I wouldn't do justice to what happens next if I don't just shed light for one minute on the moment and how it led to it. So in that video that people can watch on YouTube, I say said to one of the guys, I'm going to speak to your CEO. Because at this point, I feel like I don't trust the situation. Now, when I said that statement, I don't know who the CEO is, but I know my network and I know that in my position within the landscape, I can get through to the CEO. Whether the CEO responds or not is down to them, but I know that within my network is the ability to, 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 to do that. So, you know, and this is why I gave credit to a Mark because Mark don't got to respond at that point. Obviously, it's great that he did. And it's important that he did. And yes, leaders should respond. But you can imagine he's a, he's the CEO of Lancet. It is the biggest landowner in the UK and I will be in Europe. So at that point, it's like, do you know how many conversations, emails and meetings will be in? Now, the real question is to back to where everyone has got since COVID and since lockdown has opened up right, and changed everyone's focus. So now no one has to focus on the black issue because we're back in the real world, poetically speaking. Right. But it's like, you can't necessarily expect leaders to be in every conversation across every issue on the planet. But this is the importance of having a centralised organisation like the Black British Network that can drive it forward, not just with leaders, but with executives, with the Black staff, because it's it then takes the accountability across the... Mm. And you've got a who's who of names involved with that. O2, Tesco, Sainsbury, Sony, Unilever. I mean, it goes on and on. But I mean, it feels though like this meeting that you had with Mark was a great catalyst for for everything else that's come since well it's not so much everything else and this is the thing and you will notice you know within your line of work people will see something happen in February this year but they don't understand that it's been in the pipeline since February last year right (laughs) so so what what people see post blue water and with let's say other than Lantic it's not it's not that that moment made everything happen no I utilized the power of that moment and I navigated it towards what I was already vibrating and driving forward. Well, I'll bring it full circle to that in a, in a sec so you can understand. But I think the, the moment in that process was like, no, you're not going to speak to the CEO. The power of that moment is the expectation of black people and black men particularly is like, you don't get access. Mm. This is what we're here to change because I don't need to be a football player or an entertainer or something to be recognised or be influential or be known. And this is the power of that moment. And, you know, we've since received messages and stuff from families who sat down with their kids and watched the whole speech, right? And companies that have used it for training and such because I, I go on to explain a lot of stuff. But I end up sitting down with Mark and, you know, Mark comes to that meeting very open to listen as he said and also apologise. And the, the reality of that proposition and that coming together is... If I was not myself, I would have taken an apology and I'd have explained my position and been very grateful, which, you know, he didn't have to give his time, his personal time, you know, to do that. And and he did, right? But whatever the destiny in me is, is pulling something out of me to say, we need to turn this moment into something more than just a conversation between me and you. Because I'm a very powerful person by the fact that if that was Zion in Blue Water, his dad is actually someone that can speak to the CEO of a large organisation and say, that was my son you pulled up, by the way. And that's a very powerful thing to be able to do. But that's not success. Success is when that doesn't happen to black kids, period. Period. Because it changed the landscape. So me and Mark's conversation was, yo, like, so I, I started to talk to Mark about a whole bag of stuff. And what I say to companies is, 
not how do you prove to me that you have you you will never you've not employed a racist person but how do you use your company to be a superpower as a superpower to support the change you're trying to drive in different aspects so landsec superpower is that they are the largest landowner in the uk so cool how do we tap into that and how do we start to drive change now you already know from back in the day i've been driving drama boy so drama boy is almost a natural response explain a very quick intro to what drama boy is Drummer Boy Studios, in a nutshell, for lack of a better word, would, would, would want to be the we work of the creative industry. So, you know, a creative hub and space that connects creativity to industry and people that don't ordinarily get access that are brilliant. You know, I often described it as the democratizing access or bridging the uh, access and information gap. So Lancet being the largest landowner, it's like, boom, hey, Mark, this is what I'm on. This is what I've been doing. You know, from before, like I'd engaged the likes of Richard Rogers and other people Richard uh, recent, recently passed and with regards to driving this change but I would often walk into rooms and it's like because of how I look every day I'm not like dressed down some days like I'm just sharpish you know you know I get that you. like, you're a man of many looks Steve, as I know exactly <laughs> at that point it's like it's not so much just because I'm wearing a hood or whatever it's actually because black people from my upbringing in the UK were not introduced into the landscape and this is the power of portrait Black Britain, which we'll come into in a bit. But we were introduced as the breadth of things that we can be and we are doing in the landscape. You know, it's a whole bunch of stuff. So long and short, Drummond Boy Studios wants to be the we work of the creative industry. And we want to build spaces and hubs that don't just have tenants and members, but also have programs to really drive that type of change and that accessibility into particularly creative. And we're looking at tech and other things as well. Now, Mark thoroughly enjoyed, from what I appreciated, that understanding and that download. And we spent a bit of time talking about that. We spoke about many other things. And his immediate piece was, boom, how do we get behind Drummer Boy? Now, we've not announced much about what we're doing in and around the space. You're actually getting somewhat an exclusive of that piece. We like exclusive, Cephas. Um, Come on. Are they, uh, they going to build you a nationwide network? <laughs> listen, I have to build a network myself. You get me? But... <laughs> You know, you know business as well as I do. You know what I'm saying? If, if I'm trying to create a situation and then man, I've got the situation to situate my situation, then we're situated. Yeah. I mean, what a great friend to have. Now, listen, I'm, I'm aware that about, of our time together. Now, cool. I wanted to say also is that when I think about aspects of your personality is that I think that you are a visual master storyteller. And I think about that in terms of, 56 Black Men, you know, an incredible project, which, you know, really, I think, comes back to the idea of telling stories, of storytelling. You're doing that in, in today through portraits of, of, of Black Britain. But I suppose the thing really, though, is to sort of to give a sense of, of narrative and storytelling from the perspective of change and the change that you're trying to deliver against. Just a word on that. What I've shown the world, some people would say is life-changing, mind-changing. There's a lot of people that have you know, whose lives have been changed through what I've done. But I don't feel like I've scratched the surface and what I'm able to achieve on earth. I'm sometimes concerned and frustrated that I'm limited by my capacity as a person. And I've had to make the choice of focusing on the black conversation beyond driving things like Drummer Boy, which is more lucrative financially mm. than what I'm doing for the black conversation. But I've made that sacrifice and I've not pushed other commercial ventures with other people that I've never mentioned today because of that. And so I'm interested in storytelling, not just through the black experience, but across the board. If you could ask me, like, I want to make movies as one of the things I want to do. Like, it's a really big part of me. And there's opportunities and conversations I'm having behind the scenes to establish that. But I've had to, someone that volunteers for us two weeks ago, when she got her head around some of the stuff I'm, I'm doing, she was like, 
you know, safe as you're going to heaven. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of listeners will agree with that. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, whether I'm going to heaven or not, like I still as a human being want to express the different things. So storytelling is very important. But very quickly, just to end on the Mark Lancet conversation, what came out of that directly as well was us doing Portrait Black Britain in Blue Water. And he has been someone who has led by example. And also the organisation have been very supportive of what we're trying to do. And nothing in isolation of change as well and an awareness with regards to particularly a black focused proposition. And then lastly, to the point of Drummer Boy, like anybody, you don't sit back and expect someone to do all the work. Like, And people need to also understand, I don't just go in there, sing and dance and make things look flashy and get like a deal. Like you have to be able to back stuff up with work. And so sometimes if some with, with a personality like mine, people might get so wowed by my eloquence that they don't understand that people are not just buying into my eloquence, they're buying into my ability to, deliver on work to make to make things happen to make make things happen i mean let's finish on this question right is that the question that these interviews has tried to address is how has covid changed us that you know the planet the people the purpose if you will let's finish on a a very personal question i mean how, how has it changed you and how does it make you feel about the future as a final thought can i come back to that in a sec because i want to talk about that particular question in relation to business as well so with drummer boy for one example some of our consideration as well and as a business model becomes people are actually more comfortable working from home right to some degree and have become more hyper aware of you know things like us traveling and what that does to the ecosystem and how that has been reduced over COVID and that, that, that type of change and how do we change business, right, for the future. And Drummer Boy becomes a very interesting proposition in the face of that, because if we can build these hubs local to people, then people can actually become members and tenants and work. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole thing around that. And that's a really interesting thought piece to just plug. You want to say something? No, I'm saying you've got the plug. I want to know how COVID has changed you. <laughs> because i mean it doesn't i suppose what i take from it is that you know a lot of people have have emerged out of covid and some people will see the glass as half empty and some see the glass as half full i mean you are as active as i've ever known you remember i i first met you as a young entrepreneur many many years ago but it feels to me like there is an energy that that you have that feels undimmed by the covid experience i mean is that fair i mean and, and how do you see as a change maker in 2022 is that is that a harder thing to do or an easier thing to do it would 100 percent have changed me but i couldn't turn back and say this is how and this that's how it's changed me because Every day is, is different, right? And so they say that depression is heightened when you live in the past. Anxiety is, is heightened when you live in the future. And peace is heightened when you live in the present. And so for me, it's like, I tend not to try and think about things too much. As much as I can think about holistic pictures, I try and live in the present. And I try and take it one step at a time. And I encourage my team to do that. I detail things one step at a time. So yes, it would have changed me, you know, in the grand scheme. I just take every day as it is. And I adapt to myself, I'm able to be agile, right? And the ability to be agile became very important in COVID because if you weren't able to adapt, I did really well business-wise, financially and other other areas of my life across the past two years. And I'm very grateful for that. There's a lot of businesses that went under in that period. If anything, it reduced the amount of money I can make and the money becomes important because it helps me drive my impact. So has it changed me? How has it changed me? Yes and no. I probably... Mm to more people because instead of having to travel in between meetings you're like having back-to-back meetings now and you're speaking to like 11 people in a day whereas like I was back-to-back when I was not in lockdown but not like as much as 
I've been over lockdown and you know that that becomes an interesting element of change I guess. Mm. Sefas what a wonderful half hour we spent together it feels like we've only just got started and I just love that you know when you said that about peace is living in the present I was thinking goodness that there's a truth to that right and I, I think that thank you for sharing not only the issues but I think so much of your own story in terms of bringing them to life. Sefas Williams thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 